some reason, God decided to leave this passage ambiguous. We don't know much about Melchizedek. We don't know how he became priest. We don't know if he had, uh, what who his parents were. We don't know how he died. We're not given much information about him at all, except that he was a priest. But when we're talking about the priesthood of God, we can't just start and stop with Melchizedek. We've got to start with Melchizedek, and we've got to work our way through history. Because eventually, this mantle of priesthood was passed on. It was passed on to what we know as, uh, under the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood. This is the priesthood that most Christians think of when they hear the word priest. They think of the temple. They think of the tabernacle. They think of the, law, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. They don't think of priests. They think of these things. And we know that Moses, as he led the people out of Egypt, stopped by uh, Mount Sinai, where God led him. And on this mountaintop, God bequeathed a new law unto the people. And a part of this law was this new priesthood, where the uh, priest would perform many sacrifices and many different rituals. But in charge of the priest, there was one called the high priest, who was appointed as really the supreme religious leader, uh, at least in human terms, of Israel. And although this high priest had many jobs, his most important came once a year. Once a year, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of that month, on a day called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place, the most innermost room of the temple or tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And what he would do is, once a year, he would enter this room that everyone else was forbidden to enter. He would pass through this curtain called the veil or a, a, an immaculate curtain that means it would separate God's presence from the rest of the people. He would pass through this once a year and he would put with him the blood of a, a bull, the blood of a goat. And he would go up to the Ark of the Covenant and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull right there in the center of the Ark, right between those two areas and the two cherubs under what is called the mercy seat. He would sprinkle that blood of the bull on behalf of himself and his family because he was sprinkling everyone's blood. We all are. And then after that, he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on behalf of all mankind. And thus, the sins of Israel would be pushed back one year. Each year this happened, and every time it did, the sins would be pushed back, and this high priest would sneak in and stand up, and he performed his task, and things would continue as they were. But we are not under the law of Moses, are we? We're under a new covenant. In fact, when Jesus dies on the cross to seal this new covenant, several things happen at that moment of his death, don't they? Several things. First of all, we know that he cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And it, the scripture tells us that the earth shook. There was an earthquake. And then we're also told that several tombs of the area just flew open. So dead people rose from the grave, from their graves and, and appeared to the people. Another thing happened, though, at the moment of Jesus' death. There in the temple, the veil that separated the most holy place the re from the holy place and from the rest of the temple, the veil that separated God's presence from all the people was torn in half and ripped in two. At the moment of Christ's death. Thus, a new covenant was formed. Thus, a new priesthood was established. Do we 
fact of the matter is, there's still a sense of risk. There's simply been a change in the regard. You know, in, in, in the United States, we're getting close to a change in the regard ourselves. You know, we're coming towards November, uh, where there's going to be an election. And because our, pre- our current president has uh, served two terms, he can't run again. Therefore, no matter what happens in November, we're going to have this shifting up of leadership, a change in regard. This is how leadership works. There's, uh, in any human kingdom, there's going to be a shifting of leadership. And the same thing has happened with God's leadership, with the priesthood. It started with Melchizedek, although we don't understand too much about him. But that mantle was passed from Melchizedek onto the Levitical priesthood under the law of Moses. And now that mantle has been passed on to the Levites. The mantle of the high priest has been passed on to someone else. So we have two that are actually given here from different regions. Chapter 4, verse 15, where it reads, believe, excuse me, verse 14, where it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is our new high priest. And not only that, he's the great high priest. And tonight I'd like us to discuss this topic and to really ask ourselves what this means for us. What does it mean for us that Jesus is now our high priest? How does that change the way we live? And really, in general, what does it mean from a scholarship, a scholar's point of view? And throughout the uh, New Testament calendar, we've been reading the book of Hebrews. And although Hebrews can get somewhat complicated, I believe the point of Hebrews is very simple. And that is that Jesus is better. The Hebrews writer is going over this uh, all the time throughout this book. He's saying Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. His covenant is better. His sacrifice is better. Everything about Christ is better than the old law. And he also gets to this point in chapter 5 where he's going over this idea that not only is Jesus better in all these other ways, but he's also a better high priest. He's the great high priest. Now he explains this through several chapters, and we're not going to go through every single verse because we don't have time to do that. But uh, what I want us to do is go through chapter 7, because chapter 7 is where he really gets into the meat of the explanation. But before we get to chapter 7, we have to stop at a a pit stop along the way, chapter 5, verse 6, where he quotes from the Old Testament psalm. He quotes from Psalm 110. Okay? Because at this point, he says Jesus is a high priest, is the great high priest. People who are reading, who knew the old law, would be asking asking. Wait a minute, how is that possible if Jesus is from the tribe of Judah? Because Jesus wasn't a Levite, he couldn't, under the old law, be a priest. So how does that marry? Well, the reader, uh, the writer, excuse me, explains. He says, he, he quotes Psalm 110 where it says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So we, here we have this mysterious figure showing up again. He, he quickly appeared in Genesis 14. And here he is, quoted uh, in in Psalm 110, and that's here in Hebrews. So we don't know too much about him, but now we know Jesus is not of the order of the Levites, of the order of the old law. He's of the order of Jesus. So what does that mean? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Well, I believe he explains this in chapter 7. So go ahead and turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 7. If you haven't already done so, we're going to... 
Like I said, we don't have time to go verse by verse, but we're going to look at the first three verses here where he begins this explanation. Look through the first three verses. It says, To this Melchizedek, king of Canaan, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. I believe the argument that the Hebrew writer is making is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now, let me pause and make sure you understand what I mean by that term type. Okay? Literally, it means a shadow of what is to come. Okay? It, it, a lot of times when we use the word type, it's kind of a scholarly way of saying a shadow of what is to come. Or something that happens in the Old Testament that can be used as a metaphor for something that happens later in, in the future. Let me give you an example of a type. Okay? One of the best examples of a type of Christ we have is Isaac. Why? Because, well, think about it. Isaac was the only child, okay, a son of a father. He was also a son of promise. He was, there, was, there were prophecies given that this son would be born. And also, if you remember in the story of Abraham, he named that son Ishmael. Now, he didn't go through with that, but he was going to, he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, just as God willing to sacrifice his only begotten son, Christ, okay? So Isaac is a perfect example of a type of Christ. So that's what I mean by the word type, a shadow of what is to come. There are many types in Scripture, many types in the Old Testament of Christ, and really what they do is they ask for divinity first. They ask for to be backed up with some evidence that the Bible is God's word because it's so beautiful in, in, many, in many ways that God couldn't have written Man couldn't have written it uh, himself, right? Uh, so these types show up. And Melchizedek is one such type. I believe the writer sees that in those three verses. Look back at verse 2. It says, To whom Abraham also apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, he's speaking of Melchizedek, by the translation of his name, name he is king of righteousness. So what does that mean? It means when you look at the name Melchizedek, it literally means king of righteousness. Does that sound like Jesus? kind of does, doesn't it? Jesus is, in essence, the king of righteousness. He's the king who gives us righteousness. But not only that, he's also called the king of Salem, which means peace. He's the king of peace. Does that sound like Jesus? Wouldn't you call him the prince of righteousness? Okay, I believe these are a couple of ways in which Melchizedek is a type of Christ, but we really get into it in verse 3, where he says, without father, without mother, without beginning of days, nor end of life. Speaking of Melchizedek, I don't believe that's literally saying Melchizedek had no parents and didn't die. Some people will subscribe to that theory, but I, I, don't, I don't believe that's what he's saying. I believe instead what the writer is doing is he's referencing to how Melchizedek appears in Scripture. He appears out of nowhere. We have no reference to his parents. We have no reference to a genealogy. You know, he didn't have to prove that he was a son of Aaron because obviously Aaron hadn't been born yet. He, he couldn't prove who he was through the genealogy. We're not told anything about where he came from. And we're also not told anything about how he died. 
And I believe that the writer is saying just in the same way that Melchizedek appears out of nowhere and is a priest perpetually, it says there, or through since the same is said of Christ. Christ doesn't need to come to do it. His priesthood doesn't, the genealogy doesn't matter when it comes to his priesthood. But also, Christ, as you know, he died but he returns. And he will not, he will no longer die. And so he continues to be a priest perpetually, perfected, perfect through his priesthood. And so I believe making a point here. When we say Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, we're saying it in the same sense that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is a shadow of Christ. So once again, now that we understand that, we need to go through with what this, how this priest writer continues. He doesn't just stop there. Oh, oh by the way, I wanted to make sure this point was clear too. In Genesis chapter 14, we see uh, Moses and uh, Abraham and uh, Melchizedek have a meal together, and it's very specific. It says that they had bread and wine. Which, if you, you know, this morning we had what's called the Lord's Supper, which, of course, comes as the mystic ritual. You can have that tonight as well. And what is it? It's bread and wine. The unleavened bread and the unalcoholic or unleavened wine, is how we do it here, but, uh, you know, with the grapefruit. But it's still bread and wine in the same sense. This is the first ever moment that that is mentioned, that that kind of combination is mentioned, that special combination. I believe that that's once again a type of Christ, uh, because as we know, the Lord's Supper, the bread represents the Christ body, the wine represents Christ's blood. And so I believe this is another way in which Melchizedek is a type of Christ. But now that we understand that, we need to go through and, and see what the point of the Hebrews writer is. In the next few verses, Uh, Verses 4 through 10, he goes on to make the point that Jesus is better. In fact, that's the point of the rest of the chapter. Jesus is a better high priest. And he goes on, and and we don't have time, like I said, to read every single verse. So verses 4 through 10 in Exodus is very logical, the way he sets it up. He says, think about it in, in this way. If Abraham thought of Melchizedek as higher than himself, then that would by proxy mean that Melchizedek is higher than Levi or higher than the Levitical priesthood because, again, Levi was a great-grandson of Abraham. So by proxy, Melchizedek is better. But then he says that doesn't mean much because Christ is better than either one. In fact, in verses 11 through 19, he goes on and he discusses this changing of the guard idea. He also discusses the fact that this Levitical priesthood was flawed. Why would we need a new covenant if the old covenant was perfect, right? So this new covenant came in and replaced it. The old covenant had to get out of the way for this new high priest who is better. And in the next few verses, he goes on to list several reasons why Christ is better. And it's those reasons I'd like us to look at, starting in verse 20. Verses 28 through 22, he tells us the first reason why Jesus is better. He says, and in as much as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, talking, of course, of the Levitical priests. He says, but he witnessed to the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So those three verses are in essence, uh, they, they quote once again, Psalm 110 where it says, you are of the order of Melchizedek, you will be a priest forever. 
And he's saying the reason why Jesus is a better high priest is because the Old Testament promised that he would. The Old Testament prophesied that there would be this high priest who is Jesus. None of the other priests can say that. None of the other priests had prophecies written about them, at least not in Scripture. Jesus instead has these things. He was appointed thousands of years before he was even born to be the Christ, to be the high priest. So that's the first reason why he is a better high priest. But we move on to the next few verses. As we see uh, in verses 23 through 25, we see he's better for another reason. It says, the former priests, on the other hand, or on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, when a high priest would die, they would have to find a replacement. They're, they're, you know, obviously humans die. We don't live forever, and no such a thing as a priest. Verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why is Jesus better? Because he lives. Christ, as our high priest, will never need to be replaced. And that's a wonderful thing. He will continue on as our as our high priest. The priests of old, they died, they were replaced. We don't know what happened with Melchizedek, but we do understand that he, that I believe he was a mortal human death. But Jesus is not. He's the great high priest because he is beneath death and he continues onward and he will always be our high priest from this point onward. So he's better because he's eternal. He's better because there was an oath and a promise or a prophecy about him. Thirdly, I believe that the third reason why he's the great high priest, he's a better high priest, is because he's perfect and yet can sympathize with our weaknesses. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. What are you saying? You're saying the priests under the old law, they had to offer that blood firstly for themselves, right? Because they were sinful. They had to kind of cleanse themselves before they could please the priest. You're saying Christ doesn't need that. When Christ took his blood to the, ho- to the Holy of Holies after he died, he could have focused on it because he was perfect. He lived on this earth as a man, and yet he didn't sin. He was without sin. Now, a lot of people look at Jesus in that way, and they say, well, he's not like you and me. Well, I believe we, we see a little bit of insight into that in an earlier chapter in this book, chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So think about this. Christ walked the earth as a man. He went through all the temptations we do. Think about a temptation in your life right now. In a general sense, I'm not saying that Christ was tempted with, you know, something that only, you know, the internet can, you know, only a temptation the internet can provide. You know what I'm saying. 
but in, in a sense, every type of kid in Christ participates. Maybe they, maybe you're a kid and you were, you're being reprimanded by a parent, or maybe you were reprimanding your kid, but have you ever been telling them they're doing something wrong and they say, will you stop? Because it's like, of course I know what it's like. I was young, too. I, I've been through the same things. I'm human. I've made mistakes, too. And, and a lot of times, you know, that, that, that kid can be saved. But you can't make that statement with Jesus because he's here. And then also, a lot of times, kids will pull out pictures of their offense and say, well, I know you dealt with it, and you did this, too. So why should I not be, why should I have to stop from messing up? Which, by the way, I don't think that's a very viable option. Kids will pull out that card, right, if they want to take it by their accident. But we can't pull out the hypocrite card with Jesus either. Because even though he went through the temptation, he didn't deny it. He didn't sin against it. And that's what makes him the best of both worlds. That's what makes him what makes him the best mediator between us. Let me put it to you another way. I like to watch uh, political debates online, and, and a lot of times some of them are, are done on the news and then posted later. I love to see, you know, two different arguments uh, given and presented, but I hate to see the moderator between them leaning one side or the other. Because the moderator is supposed to be unbiased, right? The moderator is supposed to stay in the center while the other two opponents make, present their argument. Because as soon as a moderator in a debate starts leaning one direction or another, things start to go in a bad direction. You know what I'm saying? Is everybody understanding what I'm talking about here? Well, moderator and mediator, they're not that different if you think about it. And Christ is the greatest mediator because, think about it, he's between us and God. We have God on one side who is perfect and heavenly and and all these things, all powerful, all loving, all wonderful. And then we have on the other other side, we sinful humans, but Jesus can approach God. And he can approach God because he's perfect. But he can also say to God, I know what you're like, because I've been with you. I hope you understand how much of a blessing it is that Christ is the perfect master, because he's the best of both worlds. He's the greatest mediator we can think of, because he's both God and man. He knows what it's like. That's a tremendous blessing that hope can bring. And that's why he's a better high priest than any of the other high priests in the Levitical So we have these first three reasons here that he's a better high priest, but we're also given another in verse 27. The very end of the verse, it says, He did once for all, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Why is Christ at the old high priest who we would enter into the holy of holies they would bring with them blood right we've already discussed how jesus didn't need to bring the blood of a bull for for his own sake because he was perfect but jesus didn't even bring in just the blood of an animal instead he brought himself and the blood he sprinkled on the mercy seat is his own blood this is another reason a huge reason in this text that jesus is the best high priest we can think of. Because it's not just that he's sprinkling the blood, he was willing for it to be his own blood. 
Christ is not only our high priest, he's also our sacrifice. He's the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices to come. You know, there's a reason why we don't, why we no longer offer sacrifices, not only because people would be completely upset, but also because Christ came, he died, and that was the final sacrifice. Don't work forward, don't work backward, it is the sacrifice that Christ offered. And when we realize this, we understand that Jesus is the better high priest than all the other sacrifices. And I believe that's the point that the Hebrews writer is making here. So, Jesus is the great high priest. He's better than all the priests that came before. What does that mean to us? Well, now we've got to turn our attention to more of the application side. I know we've covered a lot of material, and I hope that you uh, understand it uh, well enough. But now we need to come to the application and say, what does this change about our own lives? Well, I think we need to ask the question, if Jesus is the high priest, who are the old law, the high priest would perform that day of atonement sacrifice, that sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But the other priests, they would perform ceremonial sacrifices, maybe some other sacrifices they performed. Who's doing that in this instance? Who's performing the daily sacrifice? You know, as a preacher, as a minister of God, I've been called deacon. I've been called uh, a pastor, which is certainly not natural. I mean, not Cliff and I aren't elders. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure that word means. Uh, I've been called clergy. I've been called reverend. But what's ironic is when someone calls me deacon, they actually call me go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, Peter, in writing to the church, he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous Peter tells us that we are the priests. Christ is the high priest, but we are the priests in his kingdom. And now we ask, okay, what are these sacrifices that we offer up to God? Well, I believe it's once again the Hebrews writer who answers that question. And and I believe this question is answered throughout many uh, scriptures. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, where I believe that where the Hebrews writer is kind of drawing to a close. But I believe we see here very good indication of what our duty as priests chapter 13 verse 15 it reads through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to God and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God So our sacrifices under this priesthood is the worship of our lips and also the good deeds we confess to our God. Let's focus on the first one for a second. When you think about how seriously these priests of the old law took their sacrifices,
think about what you're saying? Do you care more about what your voice sounds like to the people around you, or do you care about what God is doing from your own heart? Worship is our sacrifice. We should be sacrificing for one another. And I'm not saying, you know, sing at a stern face. In fact, I mean modestly, modestly. There's nothing worse for a, a song leader than seeing the king of the abbey uh, looking out and seeing the stern, unhappy faces in the audience. No, are we really thinking about the words we sing? When we sing, Jesus has made me glad, do we mean that? Are we glad? And, and that's, that's really something we need to be examining ourselves. Because if Jesus comes to God, and if our worship is our sacrifice, then let's be examining our worship. And let's focus in with our hearts. Let's worship God with children of God. And then the second course that we'll give you glad to talk about is in a general sense, the good things that you struck a hold of. For that, my question is once again very simple. How spiritually disciplined are you? Are you going out and, and making a habit of doing good, or is it something that's on the back burner? Is it second nature? Is it a second thought? Or is it something that you are intentionally going out going out and giving and sharing and loving and doing these, uh, these good deeds that Christ has called us to do? And are you doing them with the same seriousness that a priest would have done the same sacrifice in the Old Testament? I hope you are. And, and it's something that we need to be thinking about. And so this evening, the lesson tonight is very simple. Even though we go over a, a little bit of a complicated go through some complicated forms, and uh, we go through some mysterious texts, we don't make too much stuff up, we're good. But I do believe we know what we can learn from this. We need to understand that Christ is the greatest priest. He's better than all the priests that came before, and that under his priesthood, we are also priests. We're not appointed in the same sense the old priests were. We don't have to prove ourselves, we don't need that. Instead, we need to obey the God we are his priests, we need to perform our sacrifices for him. If you're here this evening and you've, if, and you've struggled with this, we have an invitation for each of you. We can talk, we can pray together, we can study together. The, the congregation as a whole can pray for you. If, uh, if you are struggling with this, uh, with this worship aspect, I hope that when the invitation song is, is sung, that you will sing with all your heart. And if you're here this evening and you've not yet obeyed the gospel, then you're not yet a priest of Christ. It's those who are in Christ, those who are in the church who are the priests, and I want to give you that opportunity to become a priest with us. Whatever your name is.